Welcome to the Crossview Podcast. Uh, to our audience, you're joining us wherever you're joining us from, YouTube, Spotify, uh, all the different platforms. I'm here with Aaron, and he, as you're very familiar with, and you probably see if you're watching the video, we also have a guest with us that we're very appreciative to have, uh, Mr. Peter Sonsky, uh, presidential candidate for the American Solidarity Party. Peter, how are you doing? I'm great, Marcus, and uh, consider it uh, a pleasure and a distinct privilege to be joining you and Aaron tonight. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, we, awesome. we deeply appreciate having you on the podcast. I'll, like I mentioned before we even started recording, uh, you're definitely bringing the level of podcast up uh, that we have a presidential candidate um, for, for our small podcast. And, and I know our audience definitely appreciates it as well. It's um, I personally enjoy just everyday people engaging in the political process um, and not just thinking it's too big for them or outside of scope for them, uh, for the average American. So to be able to have this conversation with you is a big deal for me, and I really appreciate it. And, and I feel the same about, I'm sure our audience feels the same as well. Yep, I so, agree. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So if, if we could, if we just like to start with uh, just asking you to kick it off by telling us who you are, where you're from, a little bit about yourself, and if you could give us a quick testimony of how you came to faith as well, uh, that'd be great. Sure, sure, absolutely. So uh, my name again is Peter Sonsky. I am a native of New England. I live now in Connecticut, was born in Massachusetts, have lived in this Northeast region pretty much all of my life, spent some time in Washington, went to school in um, in Washington, D.C., uh, had both my graduate and undergraduate degrees from the Catholic University in Washington, and I worked in Washington for uh, going on eight years. So I uh, know my way around the district, but I am uh, the average guy. You mentioned that, you know, it's not too common that you see someone who is entering uh, the political sphere, especially at this level, that mm -hmm. is uh, someone who is much like yourself. And that is what my ambition is. Marcus, Aaron, you know, we are facing a presidential campaign a year from now that is likely to pit Joe Biden and Donald Trump together, at least if you listen to the polls. And that's the same option that we had as voters four years ago. And candidly, I think many people in the United States were frustrated with the choices they had offered them. 300 million people in the United States and Democrats, Republicans, this is the best you can offer me. Um, and if we're faced with that again, I think that frustration is going to be at a very high ebb. What's different is that most people still haven't come to accept the reality of a third party being a player in politics. We have this paradigm, this, this tunnel vision that it can only be two parties. It's what we've known all our lifetimes. Republicans, Democrats, you know, red and blue. And it's, unfortunately, it's not all that is. And certainly in other regions of the world, it's not all it is. There can be successful ways to govern that is not uh, just a duopoly, a two-party mm -hmm. system. But you asked how uh, I came into the faith. I'm a, I'm a cradle Catholic, mm -hmm. uh, you know, brought up in the faith. Um, but... Uh, like like so many, I had a, a period of time where I kind of uh, in my my late teens, early 20s, kind of um, didn't place as much value in the practice of my faith. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, after being married and raising children, um, I had a reversion, a, a real uh, renewal in faith, a, a new insight that 
look, I have a huge responsibility as a spouse and as a parent, and I need to rely on something beside myself mm. in order both to sustain me and to guide me. And yeah. um, that was a real realization for me that has stayed with me and um, has given me uh, purpose and direction for 40 years. Yeah, that's good. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah, I think you're right. We all have had that experience where, you know, we, we, Aaron and both I, uh, we've both said we came to faith pretty young. I think, Aaron, you said you were like about four, yeah, four or five. And I was, I think I was about six. So uh, we both kind of similar to you, call it a cradle Catholic, call ourselves, I guess, cradle Christians. Um, but, you know, we all go through life and journey through it. And you just realize, you know, run into a few brick walls and, um, you realize you can't do this without him, uh, fully depending on him. So, yeah. um, yeah. And then you kind of just lean in a little bit more. And I think Aaron and I've both found that to be true for ourselves. Uh, Aaron, you're going to ask the, the next question here. So <clears throat> this one is, uh, I guess more, more about the party. Um, how did you, how did you come to find out about the American solidarity party? And, and I guess once you found out about it, what, what drew you to it to where now you were obviously the face of it basically. Sure. Um, Aaron, if you'd permit me, I'm going to I'll take you back even a little farther. When I uh, first graduated high school and uh, was eligible to vote, I was a Democrat. I grew up in a blue household. My parents were, um, you know, blue collar class of people. And that's what I knew growing up. But remember, this is uh, growing up in the 1960s and 70s. Um, when I was first eligible to vote, I was a Democrat. Um, and uh, voted for Jimmy Carter. And then obviously Carter lost to uh, Ronald Reagan. And also at this time, there was a, a real decided movement between the pro-life uh, faction of, of people and, and the uh, pro-abortion faction of people. And it seems like Reagan really did a lot to consolidate the pro-lifers and the, the Democrats did a lot to consolidate the pro-abortion posts. And that's kind of where I had the falling out with the Democratic Party. Um, they, I, I say I didn't leave the party. They left me because I think there's a lot that mm -hmm. the Democratic Party stands for that it still resonates with me. But mm -hmm. if, if it can't be holistic, then I can't accept it because I, I think there's some intellectual honesty that's lacking there. So I was a Reagan Democrat for a while, um, and then I became a Reagan Republican. But uh, when I became a Republican, I just realized that this didn't feel right. It wasn't who I was either. I was trying to kind of find my way along with a path of other people that had some views that we shared in common, but there wasn't enough. And so I said, goodbye to the Republican Party back in sometime in the 1990s. And I was kind of a a, um, a sojourner for a long time, trying to find something that made sense to me. And I would vote for candidates who I thought best represented my views. And that didn't always include major party candidates. In, in uh, 2016 and in 2020, I, I did not vote for a major party candidate for president. It was 2018, Aaron, that I came to learn of the American Solidarity Party. Okay. I had been searching. I had been looking for something that I felt was a better representation of my views. Um, 
a friend introduced me to the ASP and, you know, just in conversation, sharing the frustrations of fellow uh, Catholic man, I just said, look, I, I don't feel as though I can adequately identify with either one of these parties. It's been really difficult to go in, hold my nose and vote because I feel compelled to vote. But at the same time, I don't feel uh, very excited about the choices that I have. Yeah. He introduced me to the ASP and it fit me like a glove, fellas. It was mm. like a perfect expression of the values that I had. Pro-life for the whole life, meaning not just protecting the child in the womb, but also respecting the elderly, respecting right. the person who is on death row, maybe because he didn't have adequate defense or didn't have the resources to have adequate defense maybe committed the most heinous crime that you can imagine, but still has human dignity. That mm -hmm. doesn't go away because you do something wrong. Um, and look, this is what my campaign is about, raising human dignity. We had uh, just a short time ago um, a racial killing in Jacksonville, Florida. Heinous, heinous. Young man goes in and targets three black people and, and perhaps more had he had opportunity to do so. And he had these very hateful expressions on social media before that. Where is, where in our society does this enter? Why can we not respect that every human life has dignity? Every human life deserves um, to be respected and protected. And so it's, Respect for the worker who is who is not getting uh, necessarily a fair shake, not both in wages as well as sometimes being treated just like he's another piece of the raw materials that's part of the production process. Um, when it comes to um, uh, people who are in need of health care and, and can't access it, are we doing all that we, we can to provide them with uh, with proper uh, health care that uh, represents their, that recognizes their dignity uh, from the public sector. I mean, there's so many deficiencies, and it really speaks to a lack of concern for human dignity. And so that's what I personally am about, trying to raise that level. And I think, you know, the, the president can't push a button and automatically change these things, but a president can lead. He can set a tone. You know, how often do we hear when there is a mass shooting? I want to say human life is valuable. Human life must be respected. Human life, life must be protected. What do we hear? We hear, oh, we've got to ban this gun. Or, oh, we've got to give more mental health treatment. Whatever it is coming from either side of the equation. But nobody says, human life is valuable. Human life must be loved and respected and upheld and sustained. And I, these are things that I think so many in our society have um, a, a, an understanding or an agreement with, but it doesn't, um, it doesn't stay in the forefront of our minds. And, and people manifest themselves in the most horrible ways, disrespecting other people, even to the extent of killing them. Right. right. Long answer. I apologize. 
No, no, that's that's really good. I appreciate the the depth there. I think you mentioned that the Democrat, you feel like the Democrat Party back when you were a Democrat really had left you. Um, and then you just kind of went on and told us about how um, it's really the morality and the, the lack of um, human dignity. Uh, and I know you also mentioned the Republican Party also kind of mm -hmm. doing the same thing. Um, but I, I guess I also just want to ask, do you feel like the Democratic Party has also left you uh, from an economic standpoint in terms of uh, how they believe the economy uh, should work and things like that? No, no. In fact, as I, I think I said, there's many things in the Democratic Party that I agree with. Mm -hmm. um, the, the thing that, that disappoints me the most is the position and, and the, the um, very strident position that they hold on abortion. Mm -hmm. um, because it's, as I, I think I said, it's intellectually dishonest. I mean, how can you tell me that you want to um, that you want to improve education? How can you tell me that you want to improve health care? How can you tell me that you want to um, improve uh, the environment? Uh, how can you tell me that you want to um, secure uh, children in school, make them safe in, in schools? Because if you're telling me that, you're telling me that all of these things are valuable to human beings. But at the same time, you're speaking out of the other side of your mouth when you say a child in the womb is not worth protecting. And that's why I say it's not intellectually honest. Right. You've got to be able to speak in harmony. And obviously, on the other side of the fence, you know, that's the case, too. They may say, I uphold uh, the the dignity of the child in the womb. But do you uphold the dignity of the laborer? Um, you know, all of these things, I mean, are, are have to be consistent. We have to be able to say that every person in every walk of life has a need, and that has got to be observed, regardless of the circumstances and regardless of your personal preferences. Human life has value. Um, I got off the track, Marcus, and I, I, I apologize for that. But no, no, the, economic, the economic positions of uh, the Democratic Party in, in many ways still do appeal. I, I support the fact that they're trying to provide health care for people who legitimately are without health care. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I support many of the programs that they, um, they put forth in support of laborers. Um, you know, these are these are initiatives that I think are valuable. The president introduced uh, not too long ago the fact that he was going to be able to uh, have Medicare bargain for the price of prescription drugs, which is going to help so many uh, so many Americans with lower drug costs. I'm sad that it won't perhaps take effect for another couple of years, but I think it's a step in the right direction. So, sure. yes, to be sure, there are definitely issues uh, that I feel in alignment with on uh, on the Democratic side. But at the same time, I feel like they have a huge deficiency. Okay. No, it's totally understandable. Thank you. Now, this is a bit of a pivot. Um, Aaron, do you want to ask this next question? Uh, Number three? Yeah. Yeah. So as we're speaking, um, what is this? We're almost September 2023, yep. there's been some some murmuring, some talks of a possible another uh, COVID um, situation. <laughs> and so knowing what we've gone through the last couple of years, 
and things that have happened and, and all that. Uh, I guess the, the question kind of is, um, what is your position on how you would handle lockdowns or mandates or restrictions uh, in, uh, in this type of a situation? Because most people, you know, would believe that what we saw with COVID 2020, 2021, they don't think that's the only time we're going to deal with that in the near future. Um, so they want to know, they want to know how a future president would, you know, would deal with something like that again. Well, first of all, I agree, Aaron, that we're, you know, probably COVID is not something that we can just say is, has gone by. I, I imagine that it'll be around for a long time, but I think from the experience that we've all lived through over the, not we've all lived through that, boy, that was a very poor choice of words. There are many people that died uh, as a result of COVID. Uh, the the experience that many of us have um, have felt over let's say the past three years uh, at least two and a half years from the time that the COVID lockdowns were first introduced um, there's been a huge impact um, first of all I think we've learned enough individually as well as collectively as as a nation to know that the the regulations, the uh, restrictions that were imposed were not all successful in arresting the spread of the disease and that trying to implement the same type of restrictions again is not going to uh, have a positive effect. So I, I mean, I think there's a lot of people that are still certainly in favor of vaccinations and boosters and, and that sort of thing. But I think the masking, I think distancing, I think the, um, the cohorting, I think the, the, the closing of the schools and forcing students to learn in, in virtual or hybrid environments all have proved to be um, hugely detrimental in so many other ways, um, in, in societal ways that, that linger even now after we're removed from those restrictions for many months, if not if not a, a year plus. So I certainly would not be in favor of imposing uh, mandatory uh, restrictions like sending people home, mandatory restrictions like, you know, masking in public. I think it's, it's certainly a situation where people feel uh, still today that they need to either protect themselves or to protect others and they're continuing to wear masks, um, and I, I respect that completely. I think there are still people that have adopted practices where they are limiting uh, the exposure that they have to public settings, and I respect that as well. I don't think that's going to go away. I think that's something that has shaped the way each of us views our circumstances. So um, to be sure, I would I would work with health officials, but I would be very reticent because of the harmful effects that uh, some of these restrictions caused our society that are are continuing to uh, be felt to impose the same types of uh, restrictions that were imposed on us uh, in 2020. Gotcha. So along with that, <clears throat> the idea of I know, especially from the conservative perspective a lot of people uh, a lot of people have an issue with it's it seems like unelected or they, they you know it's phrased like this unelected unelected people 
seemingly making the uh uh making the um what's the word i look for policies yeah making the policies for how we should you know how we were supposed to live during that time um you know a lot of people were like we didn't elect you we didn't vote for you and but the people we did elect are just going along with whatever you say that doesn't sit right with us and uh so I know a lot of people had a, a big problem with still have a big problem with that from that angle. Um, so I guess, what are your thoughts on that? And then I have, a, I guess, another question with two with uh, you talked a lot about the social distancing and lockdowns and schools and and masking. Uh, but also, I, I would want to know your position on uh, on the vaccines um, in terms of in terms of government pressure uh, on corporations or on businesses to push it? Cause we know, we know the government didn't necessarily push it themselves, but they kind of, they kind of put businesses and corporations in a position or, you know, airports or things like that to where like they had to do it. And so it, it, it restricted travel uh, and all those types of things. So I guess, you know, that is definitely something too people would want to hear you talk about. Absolutely. Well, I think to the first part of your question, um, I'm not a medical man. I, I don't have any medical expertise whatsoever. Um, so I, I certainly would seek the counsel of people who have knowledge of infectious diseases, who have knowledge of um, this type of illness and the potential for this type of illness to do harm uh, to individuals and society in general. But at the same time, um, I think I would, especially having the benefit of having gone through the experiences, have a much more measured approach than I did before. I'm not defending the decisions that were made because I certainly didn't like them. I abided by them, but I certainly didn't like them when they were imposed. Um, but there was a great deal of panic throughout the nation and throughout the world. There was uh, a great deal of I'll call it ignorance, but I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. I simply mean that we didn't know what we were dealing with. This was a new virus that was largely unknown. We didn't know how severe it was, how rapidly it was going to spread. You saw us kind of learning as the process went on. But we have a great deal of medical advancement on how to treat the condition now. We have a great deal of knowledge about how it spreads and how to arrest it or better arrest it. So I think that um, all of that would come to, the, come to bear in any decisions that we made. And I think the public in general is much more informed than it was at the time that COVID was new. Um, so I think it would be much easier for a public official to make these decisions today as a result of having fresh and knowledge, the experience of all of these things, and also having a little bit of skepticism when it comes to medical advice um, that is about something completely unknown. Um, I think now we would expect that there was going to be much more uh, factual knowledge about uh, about this particular virus. Um, mm. You were you, the second part of your question. You were talking about uh, about virus mandates. 
Is that uh, what the, or, or vaccination mandates? Yeah, the idea of vaccine mandates or or, or not necessarily, you know, because the government was able to do it in a way where they weren't quote unquote forcing vaccines, but they also kind of were. Um, so I, again, what would be your approach to how you'd want to do that? Well, I'm not in favor of, of vaccine mandates. I, I certainly am in favor of people voluntarily wanting to, uh, secure a vaccine for themselves, a booster for themselves. If this is what they believe is going to help protect their health and the, the health of others around them. But I'm I'm not in favor of mandating it. I think there were many people in conscience okay. that wanted to avoid taking the vaccine and their uh, their views should have been respected. It was all very new and arguably very experimental. To be sure, we've, uh, we've learned a lot. And at the same time, um, I think there are still people today who feel as though they don't want to be instructed to take something that is against their free will, their conscience. I agree with you, Aaron. There were some that felt, if not, if not forced, at least compelled uh, yeah. by uh, by public opinion. Uh, you know, you should you should get. Why aren't you you know Why aren't you making an appointment to get the vaccine? But there were a lot of people that I encountered. I mean. People who I would consider reasonable, rational people who were, who were, you know, just looking in far and wide to see where they could go as fast as they could to get the yeah. vaccine. There was a great deal of panic. Um, so I respect that, too. But I, I'm not one that would would compel people uh, by the power of government to take a vaccine that was against their own um own conscience or their own uh, desire for, um, you know, main, managing their health. Okay. Good to know. Yeah, that's good. Now, uh, another thing that's been um, kind of talked about recently, uh, a hot topic, uh, is immigration, um, specifically at the southern border. Um, no one seems to really have a, a great solution um, for what's going on. At the southern border, first, I'd like to just ask you, uh, do you think this is a problem? Uh, how do you think it's impacting Americans? And then second, uh, what would your approach be to this particular issue? <laughs> That's a Pandora's box. Mark. Do, I <laughs> a, do I think it's a problem? Absolutely. There, sure, I, mean, okay. <laughs> I mean, to deny that is ridiculous. You, but you there's have to know so the many components. <laughs> there's so many components to this. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's why I say it's a Pandora's box. I say it with respect because I think that it's not an issue that I, I can just, you know, in, even in five minutes time, be able to sure. enunciate enough to, to say, this is how the problem should be solved. Mm -hmm. How I see it. Um, yes, we have a, a crisis. Um, yes, there are, I think, practical short-term ways that we can address it. Um, the best long-term way, obviously, is to force Congress to get together and put together some meaningful legislation for how they are going to address immigrants seeking to enter our, our nation, enter across our borders legally. We've got to have Congress do that because they have dragged their feet and been unwilling to do so. But in the short term, obviously, we need 
to do a couple of things. We, we need to protect our sovereignty. We need to be able to make sure that we are preventing the wrong element from coming into the country. We need to be able to make sure that drug lords and cartels and human traffickers and, and individuals who are coming here for unlawful and harmful reasons are stopped and apprehended if uh, at all possible. Um, at the same time, we need to recognize that there are people who legitimately are seeking and uh, are deserving of opportunity to enter our country. And in so many cases, they are being um, they're being forced to deal with long waits and other uh, conditions that are um, that are, are very difficult, which makes them want to work around the legal system. Um, I don't endorse that, but at the same time, I recognize that the frustration and the fear and the need that a human has in order for security and safety is such that they will do some things that are extreme in order to secure them. Um, we can definitely do better managing people at the border. We can definitely send more immigration judges down. We can definitely send more um, border patrols down. Just hire more people. We're a big government. We have a lot of potential to hire more people and to implement more people down there to manage the number of people that are legitimately seeking to cross. And at the same time, let's enhance the ways that we are patrolling the border. There's a lot of electronic capabilities that we have today that we haven't enjoyed for uh, years and decades previous to this that we can implement to uh, to protect that sovereignty that I mentioned, to protect the safety of our citizens uh, with, you know, trafficking of humans, trafficking of fentanyl, trafficking of other forms of drugs, and just overall vice. We can we can look for better ways to improve that. But Congress has got to act. The president can implement some changes, but Congress really has to identify how we are going to address this issue in a larger uh, in more long-term and appropriate manner. And that's what I would do. I would bring the leaders of Congress together and say, ladies and gentlemen, we got a problem and nothing else is more important today than your getting together and putting together some meaningful remedies to the situation we have. Oh, that's, good. that's good. Yeah, no, see, that was a good five-minute answer. I'll, we'll take that. <laughs> we we'll definitely take that. So speaking of a, a strong and sovereign border, um, I think of places like Israel um, and, and kind of use that to pivot into kind of asking you about um, just a general general view of foreign policy. Um, you know, so it's it's become, it's become a big thing in, in the news recently in the culture and, and politics sphere. Um, recently, we watched the debate last week, uh, the GOP yeah. debate, and um, one of the guys that we've been interested in, in really hearing from was Vivek Ramaswamy. Um, and we saw that exchange that he had with Nikki Haley. Um, and it really uh, showed his weakness in regard to foreign policy. And of course, Nikki Haley's expertise really is foreign policy. So, uh, former UN ambassador, his... you picked the wrong yeah. person to fight with. For sure. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, it really, uh, he's been getting a lot of questions, a lot of pushback now since he had said some things. And one of the specific things he had said was that, uh, quote, it would be a success if by 2028 Israel were independent of the U.S financially and our, our USAID uh, to Israel. 
uh, while of course still having a re close relationship with them as an ally. Uh, what are your thoughts on the U.S.-Israel relationship uh, and also generally your approach to foreign relations with other allied nations? Because uh, Vivek got a lot of pushback for that. Um, but if I can kind of throw my two cents in there, it t sounds to me that would be the point of financial aid to other countries is that they would eventually become independent. Um, and so I just generally kind of want to hear, do you think these this is like perpetual financial aid that we should be giving to other countries in our foreign policy or um, – could you just speak to that a little bit? Sure. I mean, we've enjoyed uh, a long uh, and positive relationship with Israel. And as a, Democrat, a democracy in, um, in the Middle East, uh, I think that that's something that we need to maintain. That's not mm -hmm. to say that we don't strive to have the best diplomatic relations with Palestine and with mm -hmm other um, Islamic nations around there, um, but Israel as a democracy has um, uh, an affinity and a kin, you know, they're, they're like us in that they're self, they're self-governed and that, um, you know, they're, they're striving to showcase that style of governance in that region of the world uh, that we think uh, is the, the best way forward. Um, like Vivek Ramaswamy, I would certainly like the fact that they would not be uh, dependent upon the United States forever. I think mm -hmm. 2028 is really ambitious sure. and unrealistic. But that being said, to your point, Marcus, yes, it would be great if we're providing aid, that we're providing aid to hit, give them the, the hand up, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's uh, certainly a noble ambition. Um, in terms of, I mean, you didn't ask specifically about Russia and Ukraine, but I'll, I'll happily share with you my views yeah. on, on that conflict. Definitely. I mean, I plainly think that Russia is in the wrong, that they attacked a sovereign nation, that they are trying to claim land from, uh, from Ukraine that is, uh, you know, part of Ukraine's territory. They are attacking um, innocent civilians, and I am completely appalled by this. I certainly don't want to engage, as the United States, our military in war against Russia. So I have been in favor from the very outset, humanitarian aid for Ukraine, defensive military aid for Ukraine, sanctions for Russia, and diplo diplomacy, diplomatic efforts as much as possible to bring the conflict to an end. Um, the situation isn't improving. We continue to provide the aid that I mentioned to Ukraine. I think we, we must continue. We must support the Ukrainian people so that they can protect themselves and protect their national sovereignty. Um, and not be overrun by uh, by Putin's Russian army. So would it be safe to say that the very early approach that uh, this administration took with saying, yes, we will give you, like you said, the, the aid to defend yourself, but there were restrictions around how you were using these weapons or, or, or weapons, whether, again, to be offensive or defensive. Um, now, we've seen they've kind of 
switched up on that and have over time have loosened a bit, right. but it sounds like you work out with defensive aid, but not necessarily anything that was provoking more action. Exactly. I think what okay. they have done in their counteroffensive, Marcus, has been largely uh, their own their own technology or their own um, right. their own provisions uh, from uh, perhaps other allies. But as far as I'm concerned, I want to definitely do everything that I can to uh, help them protect themselves, while at the same time not escalating the war. Right. Uh, I guess this is just a, an additional question kind of going along with uh, international affairs, kind of a, a curveball. What were your thoughts on what happened with Afghanistan a couple of years ago and the pullout from there? Well, I mean, in retrospect, we can always say we can obviously say that it was handled very poorly um, and the loss of life and, and the, the the, the, the terrible outcome is still a, a very sour point. Yes, like uh, I'm sure the president, maybe both Trump and Biden wanted to remove American troops from Afghanistan. They didn't want a situation that was lingering, um, you know, a long drawn out affair and um, intervention in other parts of the world like we experienced in uh, Vietnam and Korea and other places. So I, I respect the fact that we don't want American troops in, shall we say, high conflict areas. Um, I, I accept the fact that occasionally American troops will be part of UN peacekeeping forces that will go in and, and try to stabilize the situation. But at least in those cases, they are part of a, a multinational uh, force. It's not the United States exclusively that's there. Um, so I think that in, in efforts like that, we're, we can work with other nations to try to stabilize situations that threaten uh, the safety and integrity of uh, of people. Then we should we should work in collaboration with them. But the the honest answer was. There was a desire to exit Afghanistan, and it was executed very poorly. Um, I think if the president was honest with himself, he would he would admit that. But I don't think it's a, a very popular topic. Sure, that's for sure. <laughs> so we'll go on to um, some of the some of the more common moral issues in in American society and. So I guess what your main thoughts would be on topics like abortion, gay marriage, uh, transgenderism, especially people are worried about uh, what they're what's going on with adolescent transgenderism and, and what seems to be like um, we have all these restrictions in society for kids not to be able to do things. But then when it comes to, you know, sex change, that tends to be OK uh, from a higher standpoint. Um, what would be. Or what do you think is the role of the federal government uh, and the president in in things like like those topics? Well, I I definitely think that we have to take uh, the the benefit of society into consideration and enact laws that are going to protect people from harm. I think there are plenty of uh, circumstances where some of these uh, things that you're discussing are being um, are being introduced and promoted uh, for profit 
Mm -hmm. let's be honest, uh, talk about abortion. I think that there are agencies out there that are providers of abortion that are doing it to profit by it. Um, We've heard reports of uh, agencies selling body parts. We've heard reports of, um, you know, um, uh, these late term abortions. We had a a case that was tried that just concluded this week with um, some individuals that found uh, something on the order of 100 or 115, I think was a number of um, of aborted uh, children, aborted bodies. Um, and, you know, these are these are heinous, heinous acts that are going on. And obviously there's a great deal of people that are supporting it and they're getting they're getting uh, provided funds for their uh, election campaigns by providers of abortion. So. Yes naturally they're going to they're going to defend it because it's there's self-interest there i think the same is true with uh some of the surgery that you were discussing um aaron with regard to to youngsters i mean they are permanently mutilating human bodies whether it's physically surgically or chemically through through drugs um you know to the case where some of these are completely unalterable if uh, if uh, you know a youngster goes through some sort of uh, surgical procedure, I mean, there's no turning back. And he these are very young individuals who are are obviously not mature enough to be making uh, decisions of this magnitude at an age that they are, and yet they are being supported and actually um, being um, encouraged to pursue this type of action um can we not accept that there are people who are benefiting financially from this type of action i i oppose it and i would support any legislation that prohibited any kind of chemical drug treatments or uh, surgical uh, interventions on anyone below the age of 18 the age that we as a as a society have decided is the age of majority of of uh being able to uh manage your own affairs if somebody who's over 18 wants to pursue um elective uh treatment then i i certainly don't agree that it is in their the interest of their health i don't agree that it's in uh in agreement i don't agree that it is in keeping with uh their uh created uh dignity and created purpose um but at the same time i wouldn't enforce legislation that prohibited them from pursuing that but for for minors absolutely Okay. Understood. Yeah, there's a lot there. Yeah. Um, so speaking of youth, uh, if we can for a moment talk about education, um, there, there are definitely a, a number of people in the country who feel upset, um, mainly on the right, about things that are going on in our public schools, whether they claim you know CRT or um, again this gender ideology being pushed kind of in the public school system. Uh, of course, there's there's a debate whether that's happening or not. 
you know, we've we actually had someone on the podcast that just recently graduated high school and told us his experience with, with some of the things that, that were, were indeed being pushed within the public school system. But even aside <laughs> from that, um, I think it's safe to say that um, I don't think the public school system is uh, doing our youth the best that it could be. Uh, I don't know if it's really preparing them for the most productive uh, life and uh, participation in our society. Um, do you have thoughts on how our current public school education the way it is? Uh, what would you do to kind of address some of these things if you even acknowledge that there are some issues here uh, as as we see it as it currently stands? Sure. Um, again, a, a lot to the subject. Um, okay. First of all, uh, in, in general terms, I agree that there are a number of issues we see regularly or hear regularly uh, in, in the news media and from, uh, you know, people with whom we, we converse, we relate that there are problems in the schools. And I think that to, uh, to a degree, there is validity to this. I don't think it's universal. I think there are certainly, um, certainly school districts where it's extremely problematic. And I think that there are probably regions of the country that um, it is uh, very problematic. But I think that there are probably places where it's somewhat stable and acceptable. Um, so, but in general, we have a public system of education that has profited our nation substantially. I mean, I don't know about you fellows, but I'm the product of public education, um, you know, at least uh, until my my college. I went to a private college, but I went through public education uh, up through high school. And I think that it has benefited the nation substantially. And I think it's a a, a, a system that we should uh, respect and try to reform as much as possible. Now, one of the things that I, I don't favor is I don't favor the big top-down direction for education. I'm very in favor, uh, and you may have been uh, leading along these lines, Marcus, of giving parents an awful lot of authority on the um, what their children are experiencing in school both in terms of the academics as well as the, the social environment and the, um, the, the formation and as well as the education of their, their being. Um, but I also think that the best way to approach that is by allowing education to be developed and implemented on a much more local level. Mm -hmm. Let's, let's do away with the U S department of education. Mm -hmm. Let's, return education to the people. Let's allow local boards of education and even I, I'm talking, you know, county boards as opposed to state boards sure. have real autonomy in deciding what it is that their students are learning in school, how they're learning it. Uh, there probably ought to be some universal standards like the length of the school year and, you know, the the exposure to X number of years of history and mathematics and, and what have you. But at the same time, let's give the people in the locale that the students are being educated the authority and the responsibility to 
decide what it is their children learn. And parents have got to buy in. Parents mm-hmm. have got to take a more active role. We can we have to acknowledge too that there are a number of parents that are very hands off with this. They just my kids are going to school and you know um we live in a in a community that has a, a good school and that's all I'm I'm concerned about is that um you know our property values are high because our kids are getting good grades. But no, you've got to take a, a more earnest interest in the welfare of your students, both in what they're learning intellectually, as well as what they are internalizing emotionally and morally. I mean, in in my worldview, the parent is the child's first and foremost teacher. Mm-hmm. I may ask you, Marcus, as a uh, as a pastor to help in the formation of my child's spiritual growth. I may ask you, um, Aaron, as my my child's, you know, math teacher, history teacher, to assist in the formation of his or her intellectual growth. But I want to be the one that is overseeing that and taking care that it is being delivered and and um, internalized uh, in a in a productive way for my children's long term benefit. So that's that sounds like you would be in favor of school choice. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. I don't I don't feel that public schools um, should have the exclusive privilege of educating our children. I think. There is certainly a place for public education, but I, I definitely endorse uh, parents' uh, choice in, in selecting um, the education that they deem appropriate for their uh, children, including homeschooling. Yep. Now, you mentioned homeschooling. Now, my girlfriend actually homeschools her uh, five-year-old daughter. Um, and so, you know, we were listening to, I believe, Vivek Ramaswamy again, who had mentioned that um, perhaps we even – the government should be uh, providing some type of, uh, I don't know what you call it, uh, uh, some type of benefit financially to be able to do that. Is that something you think the federal government should be involved in or um, would you just stay out of that? Well, you know, I don't know how much you've learned about the American Solidarity Party in your research prior to this. One of the Mm -hmm. things that the, the ASP stands for is subsidiarity. Subsidiarity is a, is a big and to many unfamiliar term, but it basically means that uh, what I just spoke about, that the level of government that should uh, have um, the most authority is that level of government closest to the people that's competent to do it. So education is one plainly that I think a local uh, a local school district or or a county school uh, authority has competency to decide what it is that the children can adequately learn. I don't think it needs to come from a national level. Um, now, national defense, interstate commerce. I mean, obviously the county is not going to be involved with that. That's something that has to be handled at a federal level. But um, you know. Correction systems, well, maybe that's something that needs to be handled at a state system, at a state level. But you see where I'm going? I think that we need to be able to give authority to people at the lowest possible level of competence. It's closest to the people so that the people actually have the opportunity 
to manifest themselves in the making of those decisions. You know, I, I'm an elected official now. I've I've been elected locally, and the people entrust me as their elected representative with their authority to make decisions. And I like the fact that being a local official, I can know my constituents, I can hear from my constituents, and I can, um, you know, live in the midst of my constituents so that I have a keen understanding of the circumstances and, and feel as though I am making a very informed and responsible action when I'm voting on their behalf. Um, I think that there's a level of disconnect that increases the farther you get removed from this community level. And certainly our U.S. representatives, our U.S. Uh, senators um, are the farthest away from that. Yet they're making some decisions that impact people right in their homes. Right. That's really good. All right. Well, Peter, as we uh, kind of wrap up, we would love to go through some of these rapid fire uh, questions. Um, I'll let Aaron kind of run through those real quick, and then we'll give you an opportunity at the end, again, just to kind of give your final pitch uh, for your candidacy. candidacy. Yeah. So question number one, what would be uh, what would be your top one or two priorities? As, as soon as you enter, you know, first hundred days, you know, everybody, every candidate, you know, typically will, will uh, give like, oh, I, I wanted to get this done day one, get this done, you know, first hundred days. Uh, have, have you thought about things uh, in that way? Uh, and if you have, what, what would be your top one or two? Sure. Well, there's a number of uh, executive orders that President Biden has implemented that are um, what I will call anti-life pro-abortion that I would roll back. And there are some that he rolled back that were very pro-life that I would re-implement. So that would be uh, one of the first actions. We talked about uh, the uh, immigration crisis. That's something that we cannot allow to fester. I would bring together congressional leaders and insist that this is a topic that needs action. It doesn't need any more heel dragging. We've got to get that situation identified as to how we will keep our, our nation safe, but also allow access to people who legitimately have an interest in being here and really in so many ways can benefit us by being here. Let's be honest, guys. I mean, in in my generation, there were people that were going to trade school and that were, were learning some uh, jobs that are no longer common. And there are a lot of people out there that need blue collar labor that can't find help. And we we have either seasonal or or permanent immigrants that are uh, handling a lot of those um, those manual labor type of jobs. So it is a benefit to our society. We are, as a nation, not sustaining ourselves. Our birth rate is is diminishing, and we need the people in order to sustain ourselves. We need the workers. Look, sure. I'm a father of nine kids, so I have, I think, tried to support myself and my own social security by raising nine kids that hopefully are going to be contributing to social security for my benefit in the coming years. But, um, you know, if we're going to continue to have a declining birth rate and, and not be admitting other people in here that are going to help in solving that problem, um, I'm going to be in a tough situation and you guys may be SOL. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Nine kids. Wow. <laughs> that's uh 
You're a blessed man. <laughs> I am. I am. I truly wow. am. Not, I'm blessed in many ways. Yeah, we'll go, go with the next one. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, a buddy of ours, Andy, uh, his question essentially if someone's already open to voting for third party, and again, breaking up this duopoly as we currently see it, uh, the question really is why should they support uh, maybe the ASP, uh, the American Solidarity Party? versus maybe a larger third party like the libertarian party in order to again bring up that duopoly if that's the goal sure well i mean does the ideology accord with your own views the american solidarity party has positions that i think are very consistent with a large swath of the american electorate we tend to be a little bit left of center on um, what I'll call economic issues. We, we might be perceived as being a little bit right of center on social issues, but we're, we're um, very much centrist. We don't, I mean, when I was younger, I, I, I talked about when I first started voting. It used to be that at the time of a, um, an election, the two parties would kind of bend toward the center in order to appease the larger middle that were not perhaps affiliated with either one of the two parties. What's happened in recent years is it's gone this way and they've gone to more polar opposite extremes and they're fragmenting that middle. They're breaking it apart and trying to bring a large uh, component of it in their uh, extreme direction. And it's breaking up society when there's still a lot of people that don't agree completely with either of the parties in totality. So um, I would invite people to look at the platform for the ASP. I've shared a lot of views tonight. If what you heard from me is something that you found appealing, something that resonates with your own way of thinking, look more deeply at our platform because I'm, I'm not sharing with you anything that is unique to me. This is, um, as I shared with you at, at the outset, I found the ASP and it fit me like a glove. And I'm just sharing with you the views that so many others in our party have compiled in, in the form of a platform. Um, but I think the larger issue is just that right now in our time, the duopoly, the two-party system is not working. You've got one party that is either just barely in the majority and one party that's just barely in the minority, and they are struggling either to keep themselves where they are or to get back on top. And I think that as long as we have a situation like this where th their complete focus is on their own agenda and it's where can we either stay in power or regain power, that's what it's going to be. If you introduce more parties, at least at least one additional party and have a coalition government, now nobody has a majority. Nobody can get a piece of legislation passed without working across the aisle. So if, uh, Marcus, you're the Republicans and, uh, you know, Aaron, you're the Democrats and I'm the ASP and we have, you know, 35 percent and 35 percent and 30 uh, percent, there's no way for any of us to be able to enact a piece of legislation that requires 50 percent of the vote in the House or 60 votes in the Senate unless we work together, unless we find mutual ways and come to some sort of um, common sense agreement 
Um, I think that there's there's merit and benefit in this, and it, it could be a successful form of government. Yeah, a coalition yeah, I was, government. I was just talking with somebody the other day, uh, in the idea that not even not even actually half of the population votes, mm-hmm. and you know, of the in the country as a whole, and you know, so we we get caught up so often in those, uh, you know, everything is so close, like you said. But in reality, it's, we're only going off of like 40, 45% of the country, you know, and I think mm-hmm. a lot of people are turned off from voting because of they're just turned off by only the two parties. That's all they see. They don't see anything changing. And, you know, why should I even waste my time? Well, and, Aaron, have you heard, on the other hand, people saying, if you vote for a third party, you're wasting your vote? Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to actually rephrase that and say, I was just told the other day, um, that if you're voting for the third party, you're 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 voting for the Democrats or Republicans. So in other words, if I was a if because I would be sure. a generally generally I would vote Republican. So if I'm voting for you, then I just gave a vote to Biden. Yeah, I understand <laughs> that. And I think that people yeah. look at it that way and they can spin it both ways. I mean, some people mm-hmm. could say because the ASP is a very pro-life party that voting for them is taking a vote away from the Republicans. And uh, some could say because the ASP stands very strongly for protection of the environment or um, immigration reform or, um, you know, support of of labor unions that you're um, voting for the ASP means you're stealing a vote from the Democrats. Well, the reality is, I think if the people you mentioned, the, the, the disaffected voters that are not voting, they're the people that are wasting their votes because they are not letting their voices be heard. Right. So if you're voting for something in which you believe, even if it's voting for a third party, then I think that you are expressing your will. And at the end of the day, you can look at the hundreds of thousands of votes that were cast for the the red and uh, the hundreds of thousands of votes that were cast for the blue or, or millions if you want to. Uh, talk about it in terms of a national count. But the reality is maybe it's the tens of thousands of votes that go to the Greens or the Libertarians or the ASP or the Constitution Party or whatever that Mm -hmm. people look at and say, wow, what do those people know that voted for that candidate that I don't know? Um, I think that there is something that people are missing when they're only hearing um, the argument of uh, the two parties, and I, I don't think the media helps us because they don't acknowledge the um, the voices of the third parties, and they certainly are not welcome on the stage when debates are taking place. Um, so, right. I, you know, we need to struggle. Look, for me to be elected, fellas, I'm going to have to go to as many states as I possibly can and petition my way onto the ballot so that my name can appear on the ballot written like it does for Republican candidate, like it does for Democratic candidate, like it does for, you know, whoever else is on the ballot there, whether it's green or libertarian or what have you. And that's a tall order. In some states, it's maybe 500 signatures that you need, but in some states, it's like 12 or 15,000 signatures that you need. It seems like, you know, oh, well, that's no big deal, but they give you a small window of time in which to get it. Hmm. And, um, you know, to be able to find people to, excuse me, to solicit these uh, signatures, to compile them, 
and submit them in a way that's uh, required is a challenge if you're unfamiliar with it. So you largely have to go out and hire professional signature gatherers in order to do it. So it's it's a tall order. And I hope that I'm able to get on as many ballots as a listed candidate as possible. The reality is I probably will be in at least half of the states as only a write-in candidate. And then I have to rely on people to remember my name and to, uh, to you know, to go in and fill out the ballot in that way um, yeah. when they get there. Right. I'm not sure I answered your question completely. No, but, that was um, good. That was good. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so uh, before we wrap up and give you a chance to, you know, again, pitch uh, why people should end up voting for you, let me ask you this. Uh, obviously, you have your, your running mate already uh, selected, uh, Lauren Onek. Um, could you tell us a little bit about her? Um, and I, I did read that she's a stay-at-home mom of three. Um, mm -hmm. So what makes a stay-at-home mom of three uh, want to get into uh, the vice presidential slot? You know, because she's really passionate about um, the changing the way that America is uh, is going. And she's one smart lady. She is a, a stay-at-home mom of three, but she's educated as a professional educator, and she has taught. Her husband, in fact, is uh, a professor. He he teaches um, computer science at uh, a public university, no, a private university. Um, Lauren has um, uh, a let's see, her bachelor's is uh, summa cum laude from Columbia, uh, an Ivy League school, so she's a smart person. Mm -hmm. And she's very dedicated to the principles of the ASP. She's a millennial. She's a young person like yourselves, not mm -hmm. an old uh, baby boomer like me, and has a great deal of concern for her generation and wants yep. to be a spokesperson for that generation. She wants to be a spokesperson for women, too, because yep. she feels as though women are getting um, treated in ways that are inappropriate. And mm -hmm. I, I agree and respect with that opinion. So um, she's just penned uh, a couple of wonderful um, observations about maternal health. There are a, a special, uh, there's, there's a lot of concern these days with maternal health, especially in the black population. There's been a lot of deaths uh, both during pregnancy and postpartum for right. black mothers. And, um, you know, it's it's a crisis that we should be able to address more efficiently than we have. And so she just wrote uh, a wonderful two-part blog article on that. Uh, go to petersonski.com and you can find those articles. But, um, you know, there, there are issues simply that are not being addressed that are where the rubber meets the road. And Aaron is the type of person that really has passion for that what is affecting you in your household in your family and how can we address these issues because the problem fellas and if i can kind of segue now into mm -hmm. why to vote for me sure. i would say is that if you look at the two-party system you can see that there is an elite class in both of the parties there is a donor class that governs the party you'll find that elected officials in either party now are being screened such to the point that if they are not in lockstep with the agenda of the party, that they are either being dismissed as potential candidates, or if they are elected officials themselves, uh, the party's primarying other 
challengers against them to get them out of office because they want people who are going to be in total um, acceptance and support of the ideology of the party. It's Mm. not in the days, you know, where you had the blue dog Democrats that were, you know, the more conservative Democrats or um, kind of the the moderate Republicans who had more of um, uh, a liberal liberal either social or, or fiscal agenda. No, those days are gone. They want they want the, the people that are really staying closer to the, the, the polls, the extremes on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think the public is being adequately represented. Right. It's, it's the donor class that's getting what they want, whether it's the special interests on the left or the right. They're getting their special treatment and, and the party leadership and you know, the the party uh, elected officials. And then whatever manages to come down may benefit you and I. But Mm -hmm. the reality is the two-party system is not working for us. It's working for them. And I think that we need to change that. We We said at the beginning of the party, I'm just an average guy. I'm not a career politician. Yes, I've been an elected official. I've I've held three different offices on a local level. So I've got some experience experience with it, but I don't consider myself a career politician. I I have a a nine to five job. And so that's where I, you know, earn my living. And that's where I invest my my attention, um, you know, every day, uh, Monday through Friday. But I'm at a point where I'm frustrated with where we are headed and the prospects of a repeat election from 2020 really not only frustrates me, but frightens me because it means that we can't, as a, as a society, move on from what we largely agree was one of the worst options that we've had in the history of the United States. So, look, it's a tall order. It's it's nearly a miraculous uh, situation that would allow me to be elected. But if I can bring concerns and policy issues forward that matter to people and hopefully force them to become the subject of discussion and debate, that's a win for me. If I can introduce more people to the notion that a coalition government a government that is not exclusively two parties can be more effective than a two-party system. That's a win for me. Yeah. I, I I certainly ask for your listeners' support. I would love for them to go into the voting booth and to check Lauren Onak and Peter Sonsky off as their choice for vice president and president, respectively. But at the same time, I know that the prospects of that um, being enough people to get me over the finish line or slim, but damn it, if I don't feel that it's important to to at least bring the message forward that alternatives are viable, and I think alternatives are essential at this state of um, the the history of the United States. Yeah, yeah. that's good. Definitely. Well, Peter, I mean, we can't thank you enough for yeah. giving us this time and and uh, sharing you know, your views, um, you know, who you are with us, um, with our viewers. Um, we thank you for your time. And, uh, before we leave, yeah. uh, plug how people can find you, find the party. Sure. Uh, look, look up things. Thank you. 
petersonski.com is the website. Uh, petersonski.com. You can find me uh, on Facebook. I have a Facebook page, uh, which I think is petersonski2024. I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'm on Instagram. I'm on um, what else am I on? On Threads. Hey, how about that? Um, <laughs> so, you, you know, there there are plenty of ways. And the American Solidarity Party, solidarity-party.org. Solidarity-hyphen or dash party.org. Look that up too. You can find the, the platform there. Um, I would I would welcome your support financially. I welcome your support. I mean, um, I am I'm trying to earn as many funds as I possibly can in order to um, to secure those um, those ballot um, access uh, requirements that I told you about. But it also allows me to do a little bit of travel and to be able to take the message to people in different places of the country to promote uh, the ASP. So I'm very grateful to you fellows uh, for the invitation to visit with you and your audience. I'm very grateful um, for the faithful um, perspective that you bring to your podcast and a willingness to be um, open to ideas of uh, improvement for our nation and its people. Um, I don't profess to hold the only answers, but I do profess to hold some what I consider to be better answers than what the two-party system is offering us. Yeah, that's for sure. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. We appreciate yes. those kind words as well. And uh, we thank hope you, you uh, have a good rest of your, your night. Thank you, sir. God bless you. God bless you.